We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Welcome back to the Dominion Podcast Season 2. Happy to be back. You guys happy to be back? Happy to be oh, back. I'm really happy, happy. Uh, for Ben to be here today, and I'm glad to be here with you two giant eggheads. You know, I'm just, I'm just little old me. I just sit here and sit in between the titans as they <laughs> battle it out on well, important but you, issues. But you bring the fashion, though. I do, and I also know which button on the little <laughs> thing here plays the uh, the horn. You know, the, the sad trombone. Yeah. So we're gonna need that before this episode is done. Don't say anything that's gonna require that because i will push the button we'll try not to provoke you <laughs> well thanks again for joining us we're happy to be back uh i'm jeremy boyd i'm alex klusterman and i'm ben inglis that's right and we are all uh board members of the kawartha classical christian school our yep. unofficial official sponsor mm-hmm. uh we're happy to be here and um wanted to one of you guys tell us a little bit about what we do over there at the school yeah, well, we we seek, do school stuff. Yeah, we seek to train <laughs> uh, children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and uh, teach them about the wonder of God's world and the beauty of truth, and uh, the joy of coming together in a a culture that is beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a wonderful place. And we're having that our is a wonderful place. Yeah, pancake breakfast tomorrow. That's tomorrow, oh, right? That that's tomorrow. right. So, uh, well, that's going to be this is that's going to be done by the time this airs. Oh, yeah, so, we true. hope you enjoyed Last the, Saturday. Then, I guess we hope you attended the pancake dinner and donated lots of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if not, you can always just go on the website and and see how you can support us, or you can uh, support us by uh, giving your kids a great education mm-hmm. with us. And uh, also, we're brought to you by the uh, Upper Forty dot com, not the Upper Forty Upper Forty dot com. Check it out. He's got uh, great great tunes up there, and I think he's got a project coming out where he's going to be posting other people's stuff on there as well. So mm-hmm. keep your eyes peeled at Upper40.com. Well, it's been quite a week. It has been quite a week. Yeah, it has been quite a quite a couple of weeks. But uh, what are we uh, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, today we'd like to um, basically discuss two podcasts that recently went down. Um, one with Dr. Michael Haken, just just basically offering a clarification for him and his listeners, uh, and just for the sake of the gospel, uh, and then spend the bulk of our time responding to a podcast that was put out by uh, Paul Carter, Raoul Carchet, the uh, self-appointed Pope of TGC Canada, <laughs> and um, they're against popes. Protestant yeah, so popes he says. And, yeah, <laughs> and um, basically. You know, not, not not to be unduly polemical. To be honest, preparing for this and and listen, I put off listening to that thing for two weeks when I heard it came out because it's just it's just so difficult to listen to and dis- it's discouraging. Um, and there's no part of there's a very small part of me that wants to hear anything, you know, that he says at this point. But the reason we need to talk about it is it really is a gospel issue. And by gospel issue, I mean um, the path of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is one of repentance. That's correct. And to be truly reformed is to be characterized by a life of repentance. And this was Martin Luther's first theses. And 
And beyond being Reformed, uh, who really cares about that in one sense, being biblical? Uh, Jesus' first words were, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And um, when I listen to this, doing a recap on the last several years in the church, uh, it was scary how little humility and repentance um, was there. And I think that that kind of hypocrisy is the kind of thing that we see in Scripture that Jesus and the prophets and the apostles after Jesus did confront within the church. And we'll get into that. And I think there's an onus on us for the sake of the church to guard them against such such high-handed hypocrisy. And uh, the church can grow into the image of Jesus only as much as we're committed to repentance, which means we're committed to the truth, we're committed to being honest about ourselves, honest about our shortcomings, honest about our failures, with the humility and a willingness to learn and to grow. And when we cut ourselves off from that, and when we just justify ourselves and um, have an echo chamber convincing ourselves that we're right, uh, you know, we've we've fallen into the path of folly. And uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to talk about. But in the end, we believe that, you know, like Paul confronted Peter publicly because he stood condemned, uh, we need to confront these guys and we need to call them in on their hypocrisy. And we do hope and pray for their repentance. That's I right. mean, a lot of these men are men that we've publicly supported, that I've personally spoken with face-to-face and I've corresponded with by distance. And, you know, several years ago, um, would have commended. And even through the course of these disputable things, tried to interact with uh, to, to little avail. And so um, it is a sad thing. It is a sad thing. But um, the temptation of Adam to hide and cover and blame uh, won't help us. Mm. The only path forward that will honor the Lord Jesus Christ is repentance. And so we need to we need to work towards that. Um, maybe, and I should give another disclaimer. I've said this publicly. I think quite a bit, even in the documentary, I say this, that I'll be the first to tell you that I'm someone who's in the camp of having needed to repent of certain actions and beliefs that I held to coming into the pandemic. So um, the so-called pandemic. But what I don't want to do is stand here kind of having myself failed in a variety of ways mm-hmm. uh, to then turn around and gloat and boast over men who are failing. That is that is not what this is about. Yeah. And I think that um, a lot of us could admit that we went into 2020 immature in our character and immature in our doctrine. And I can say for myself, I had to confess to my family and to our church publicly and to anyone who will listen that we, that I did not make good decisions as a leader, that they weren't based on um, comprehensive biblical principles, but very shallow ones, and that they were more often than not, or at certain points, driven by the fear of the consequences of what I thought obedience might entail. And so, you know, I'm very much in some ways, I've been on the other side as Peter, you know, in this situation. And, um, my desire for my brothers, and as much as they are my brothers, is that they would they would humble themselves. That, that when you see men who are still 
making excuses and lying about the situation. It's just like, there's no good end to that. Mm-hmm. And, and the excuses that you make and the lies that you tell yourselves and others, they, they eventually will crumble. And um, if you want to have a free conscience, you know, I, I can say for me that when I confessed my failures as a pastor and a husband to my wife, for example, I just had a total breakdown. And after that was really when publicly we took a lot of pressure and, you know, the, there were things that happened with the police and it was a challenging time, but I actually slept fine yeah, because my conscience was clear. Mm-hmm. And I can tell from these men that they don't have a good conscience. And uh, you can try to tell yourself that, you know, the real problem is with other people and blame other people and caricature them, but um, that won't assuage your guilt. Mm-hmm. And so you need to come clean and, uh, and you need to be free. And you need to lead others in the gospel that way as yeah. well. So that's that's really where we're coming from. Like this is not I, I despise discernment blogger type guys who really sound like they live in their mom's basement and have no people skills and justify all their actions by someone else's sins. And um I, I don't want to do that. But uh at the same time, if you just read the New Testament, you just read the Bible. Mm-hmm. If you look at Jesus' life and ministry, it was a polemical one, protecting the sheep from false shepherds. And if you look at Paul's ministry after him, so much of it was um, warning the flock about bad teaching and <clears throat> bad living and hypocrisy. And it just is our job. Yeah. So like it or not, um, this is where we're, we have to go. So... Yeah, buckle up. It's going to be a bit longer one. And, uh, you know, I've said, and I'll say it again, I'm willing to talk publicly with anyone about any of these things. As we have been the whole time. The whole time. Yeah. And and um, I am I would love and encourage a public forum if there is actually a genuineness and a sincerity. A council. Yeah. Even. Like, this is what we were calling for this, um, you know, a couple months into this yeah. thing. And it never happened. So... It still stands. If there's an honesty and a genuine willingness to learn, to listen, uh, to be corrected, um, then we can arrange that right. by all and every means. We're willing to do that. So were you familiar with all of the guys on the podcast? Um, a couple of them, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not all um, of them. I was uh, The only name I knew was Paul Carter's name. So. Yeah. Um, but, um, so why don't we begin, Ben, maybe just pointing, Dr. Haken, who we've both sat under as a teacher, and and uh, he, I think he knows who we are personally. Um, and for many years, we have really advocated for his ministry. He's a church historian. Yeah, church. He's he's the leading, I would say, one of the leading church historians in the world. He's, yeah. he's very respected as a scholar. He's trained many, many people. Um, he's a master teacher, and you even get that in the podcast. Like, he is... He is probably my favorite professor to listen to. Mm. Like, there's a reason he is where he is, and his skill and competence is absolutely unquestioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what was so discouraging over the last several years is that it felt as though um, he is he is the world's preeminent scholar on dissenters and nonconformists. So I don't think that's in dispute. I think that everyone believes he is a preeminent scholar in that regard. And um, when he got into it, there weren't a lot of people, you know, studying those guys. And and he's launched, in, in some ways, he's been a, a huge part of the reason we have scholarship in 
in Baptist fields, um, yeah. you know, who are who we're downstream from the nonconformists. So we we owe so much to his mm-hmm. labors here. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember personally speaking with a former member of our church um, who was very close to him and saying, we need to get him to organize a council. We need to get him to get men together. And I said council. Yeah. And this was early 2020, like before the summertime or in the summertime. And said, we need to get together and sit down with all these brothers and we need to hammer out some fundamental principles and understand how the church in the past has thought through these things. And um, like, we wanted that to happen. And, and it was disturbing and really discouraging to see nothing helpful come out. I mean, he held a conference recently in the last year, like after everything had stopped. And I corresponded with him about that a little bit, but it's like, you showed up to the battle after it was done and um, you were completely silent. The moment that your entire life you had been prepared for to help the body of Christ, mm-hmm. you you didn't do that. And often the hot takes were actually just critical of yeah. people who were in the dissenter and nonconformist. And it just shows like knowledge of history is not enough. You need wisdom and you need humility. And, you know, the people around Jesus proclaimed an undying love for the patriarchs. And Jesus told them that if they showed up, you would kill them. Yeah. <laughs> if you lived in that day, you would have killed them. Like the problem is not that you don't know the facts, it's that you think you're the hero. Yeah. And you have to realize that you are not the hero. You built the tombs of the prophets. Yeah, you decorate them, but you're not the hero. And unless all of us humbly acknowledge that we're not likely to be the Martin Luthers, we're not likely to be the Tyndales, we're likely to be the people who cower in fear and come up with a thousand reasons they're wrong. Like We think that if we were in that day, we would have looked at them and said they're noble and virtuous, but history should teach us statistically that we wouldn't say that, Mm -hmm. that we would be prone to find a reason why they're not. And and that's just what happened. That you know, even his takes on the nature of persecution you, were so juvenile and and unbiblical. And it's like, haven't you been studying the persecuted church forever? And your mm-hmm. definition of persecution is is so not thought out. Mm-hmm. So recently he did a podcast and he talked about um, the Donatist controversy. And maybe you could pick up there, Ben, and just kind of a clarification we wanted to offer there. Yeah, like, um, it's a few days I've listened to it now, but um, so in the wake of um, persecution, there were kind of uh, a certain persecution. I had always assumed it was uh, during the reign of Diocletian, but uh, Haken makes a case that maybe that wasn't the persecution. Anyways, at the end of that, or in the midst of that, there were a number of Christians who... um, capitulated uh, and kind of had burned either the scriptures or biblical documents. Or handed them over. Handed them over, uh, had basically apostatized. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the person came to a clo- persecution came to a close, there were kind of two sides. There was uh, the one side, which I don't actually remember the name of, but they were kind of willing to... Uh, let bygones be bygones, and I think actually the blood of a certain uh, martyr. Um, he kind of said in his dying, uh, as he was about to be martyred, like my blood w- should cover all of those who apostatized, and which was a very strange thing to say uh, because our blood isn't efficacious in no. that way. But uh, in the wake of that, they were all just kind of 
it's okay, whatever happened then doesn't matter, come on back in. Um, and on the other side uh, were the Donatists and another group Haken mentions, I don't remember, um, who were very much um, cautious. I think specifically the, the issue for the Donatists were having those who had apostatized um, be involved in any way in offering the the sacraments. Well, the current uh, Bishop of Carthage had been ordained by somebody who had apostatized. Yes, that was and it. And so yeah. they said that his 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 status uh, didn't count. And so anybody whom he had ordained then was an illegitimate bishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they were fighting against this. And, and so it kind of... Yeah, yeah. And, and the Donatists <clears throat> kind of were unwilling for those who had apostatized to kind of entertain putting them back into the uh, kind of the bastion of the church yeah. without a commitment to lifelong penance, basically. Right. Uh, ongoing penance, and they would never again be put into leadership. And um, Whereas Cyprian, kind of the bishop at that time, was advocating for um, a, a middle way, as far as I, I understand, where it you can't just pretend that nothing happened during this persecution. <laughs> mm-hmm. Apostasy actually took place, and that's a serious thing. Um, so we can't just welcome them all back as if nothing happened. There has to be some uh, repentance first, right? Someone, uh, a willingness to admit that there was um, a capitulation there, a concession uh, and and an abandoning of of Christ. Yeah. I mean, if you can picture it, there would have been people sitting in the pews who had loved ones who were executed because of the witness of some of these priests and bishops. Yeah, who yeah. had given them over. Yeah, yeah. and so and, there was this tension going on in the church. Yeah, and on the other hand, um, we can't arbitrarily designate certain sins as those which can't be forgiven, right. right? And the church has done this throughout its history, right? There are certain things which can't be forgiven. Uh, there is restoration, mm-hmm. um, and we 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 long for that restoration to take to take place, but. Uh, that happens in the wake of confession and repentance. Yeah, um, and there seemed to be uh, an indication that um, from that podcast that what Haken referred to as the rigorists, um, those who um, you know refused to accept by the right. back those who apostatized, resembled um, those who during the pandemic. Uh, insisted on reopening their churches and refusing state infringement on conscience. Yeah, um, that they were that we are uh, we were in some way resembled uh, the rigorists and the Donatists. Yeah, um, and and so those were kind of uh, it seemed to be the the narrative. Yeah, the, right. of that podcast uh, yeah. just so, at the end of it, yeah. right there. So it seems like the the um, analogy that's being made is the rigorists and the Donatists were kind of the extremists, the extremists, right? And then there was Cyprian and later Augustine, who sort the of reasonable resolved. middle ground. They were the reasonable middle ground that kind of mediated between these yeah. two parties, and so yeah, that's it's a, almost an attempt to identify with that. Yes, middle ground we're the that, reasonable middle ground, and the people who challenge and disagree with me are extremists and graceless. 
men who don't, you know, really live out the gospel, right? Yeah. And um, we just want to say from the get-go, I mean, I'd love to know his sources, if he's as rigorous in his declarations of today, especially when they're making serious allegations of sin. Where are your sources on that? I've been a part of that camp since the, what, the second lockdown. We locked mm-hmm. down initially. Yeah. Um, I can say that I've spoken with probably every public figure that people would know in this, I mean, in that small group of churches and that Donatists have been brought up multiple times as people to avoid. And we've had many conversations about how do you respond to men who are repentant? Um, as I said in the beginning, I mean, I was one of those men. Like I, I wasn't, and I'm very clear with people in my conversations because I sometimes I get identified with, you know, um, Pastor Aaron Rock or Pastor Jacob or Pastor Tim, like they're guys in our group of churches. I'm not that guy. Like, I can't tell you that I looked at this situation two weeks in and saw what was going on and had the biblical um, foresight and the wisdom. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who totally lacked all of those things and was the recipient and of God's grace and patience and largely through men like that. So when um, Dr. Joe Bood and Pastor Aaron Rock and several others, or I can't remember exactly who framed, for example, the Reopen Ontario Churches document, it set a theological framework for the nature of the church yep. and its relationship to the state, which to my knowledge hasn't actually been refuted by any of these men because they actually don't um, like to have open, truthful conversations. But uh, I, I, all of a sudden, I wept when I read that because it was like my conscience was pricked. Yeah. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't have the theology to tell me the right way and why I felt convicted. It was like a, it was like when you're really thirsty and you drink a giant glass of cold water. Like yeah. It just, it's, it was so good. Yeah. yeah. And so I had to repent. So I am that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thankful that, that, you know, the Lord forgave me and I certainly wouldn't, um, refuse to forgive uh, any man who is like me. And no pastor I know of would refuse to as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 so we want to state unequivocally um, that we know of no one, and certainly not us. If a man shows humility and acknowledges that he acted sinfully and he neglected his duties as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, and that he failed his neighbor and he offered worship to the state um, that he ought not to have, and then, then we would forgive them. It is, it is tragic how infrequent are the instances of public repentance yeah, never from happens. those who have sinned publicly. Yeah, yeah. And, for, and I'm talking about not just on this issue, but um, public sins of public Christians for yeah. decades— uh, I can think of a number off the top of my head, but like where the response hasn't been um, even like open, like maybe I have sinned. It's it's immediately defensive. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Um, setting the narrative. Yeah. So you don't, you weren't at fault. Yeah. Trying to justify yourself. And it's like, especially in the reform camp, yeah. your ministry is bait, based on, on the assumption of repentance, yeah, and and but how you're so acting rare. right now tells me that <clears throat> yeah. this isn't a functional part of your Christian life at no. all. No, no, it's so rare. which is which is um, really makes you think twice about 
the ministries that we have grown up around. Yeah. Uh, when the rubber meets the road and yeah. you've messed up and you can't take the bullet. No. Um, that's that's concerning. Well, it's a sign of hypocrisy that yeah. you, you are desperate to preserve your image and even self-image. Um, but I, the one thing I want to say to these guys too is that God sees, you know, um, someone who deals in narratives and self-preservation is deceiving themselves. But I just want to say the Lord knows. The Lord knows whether I'm a Donatist. The Lord knows whether the men in my camp, so to speak, are Donatists. And I'll tell you that the Lord knows they're not. So you you need to take that up with him. And you can you can do your messaging and you can do your subtle, underhanded comments and your attempts to discredit people without having the courage to actually stand by your words. You can you can do all that, but the Lord actually knows and he sees. And uh you'll you'll take you'll have to bear the consequence of your words. Mm-hmm. And the really concerning thing I don't know if we're moving on to the the next yeah, we can move across on. Canada podcast, but um, was the narrative that we were supposed to buy, I suppose, from that podcast that there was a a, a, a total willingness to debate and discuss? Yeah, because these were unfamiliar waters to all of us, as yeah. you were saying. We all screwed up at the beginning. Yeah, we did not have a robust or a vigorous, uh, rigorous. Um, theology of church and state. Yeah. None of us did. No. Uh, because we had never been challenged in that yeah. way before. And there was a there was an eagerness a eagerness you're saying almost a desperation. Like we we want to land biblically yeah. on these issues. Yeah. Please can we do that? Yeah. And especially in Canada, it was like a wasteland. There was yeah. no one even willing to enter into these discussions, no. right? So we were trying to hammer these things out, and then we had a pastor's colloquium. We had a pastor's colloquium, and and praise God for uh, Joe Boot and the Ezra Institute. I think I've mentioned this before, but like some really crucial, uh, nitty gritty. Let's get down to what we're about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Niagara um, Declaration was fantastic. Yeah, but right at the beginning, um, and you can read all this online. I recently re- reread it. Um, the Gospel Coalition Canada had invited Joe Boot to to give a response back when the churches were starting to realize there's something wrong here, starting to reopen, and Joe Boot was one of those. Could you give your response? A, a, a good on them for asking that. Mm-hmm. And so so Joe Boot had written a response, which you can find, maybe we can post a link uh, yeah. for that after. Yeah, after Rebel, Joe, Rebel Media. Posted. Rebel Media had posted it. Yes, yeah. that's right. A very measured non-inflammatory entirely consistent with the confession yes um defense and uh it was it was told him that this is we're not interested in publishing this anymore so the whole pretense of we were willing to form a council we were willing to discuss yeah is just a blatant lie it's a blatant lie Yeah, yeah so let's let's go from the beginning like when we when you listen to this podcast, I had the thought several times, um, this is uh, a good demonstration of Canadian cultural Christianity. Yeah. And I don't think these men actually realize that they live in a bubble. And I thank God I got out of this bubble. And I mean that, I don't mean that patronizingly. I just mean li- like going back to that world and listening to the way they talk. It just, it gives me the willies and um, I just want to warn them that the the way that they're talking and the way that they're thinking is not normal. 
It doesn't reflect, you, you can't line that up with the Bible. You have your Christianese that you use, you have your Christian words you use, but it's actually Canadian values. It's not Christian values. It's Canadian values with Christian words on top of them. When you talk about unity, when you talk about disagreement, when you talk about first order things. When you talk about um, the damaging witness. Yeah, damaging witness. Yeah. Like you, you actually are just... You are just totally embodying the cultural ethos, what the Bible calls worldliness, and you are throwing on top of it Christian words and lingo, lingo which is syncretism, and that's what that's why we have the Old Testament and and the warning against syncretism for the Israelites in the New Testament. John ending his letters of of keep yourselves from idols. Um, this is what it looks like when you get the church and the world and politics all muddled together. And um, that's the first thing I'll say is that this, I think for these guys, this seems normal. And that's a scary place to be um, when, when, when that conversation seems like a normal conversation. The big thing I want to drive home is what you're, what you're getting at, Ben, is the most basic and fundamental problem with a podcast is it it reflects a hypocritical reimagining of reality. That's right. That is the problem with it. It is a classic um, case of narrative formation, which is something politicians do. The irony is that these guys were talking about not being political for the pandemic, some of them, the shamdemic, but they actually are embodying the ethos of politicians. They're engaging in narrative formation, whereby the nature of the conflict is framed in such a way to accomplish a certain goal. Mm. In this case, to absolve them of any responsibility to act and repent in costly ways. It's deceitful, it's self-preserving, it's nauseating. And we see this in scripture over and over that is characteristic of false prophets. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I can think of one one way that they did that during the podcast was um, uh, Paul Carter, it sounded like he said that people from our camp were calling him an antichrist. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just don't think that's, that happened. I mean, I've seen the documentary. Um, I don't think there was any direct accusation of that. Well, I, I would, I mean, I would agree that Paul Carter actually stood in opposition to the churches over the course of the last three years. Yeah. He, he stood in assistance to Leviathan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for sure. He totally agreed with the state. He publicly opposed the church and, uh, yeah, I would say that for sure. Um, you know, we see this come up again and again in Scripture, but one of the tactics of Jesus' opponents is to accuse him for speaking the truth of actually being corrupt, mm-hmm. to dismiss his views. And uh, we see that in in um, John 7, you know, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the mm-hmm. law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon, who's seeking to yep. kill you? Right? So it's like, we're raising an issue, we're raising a concern, we're telling the truth, and your response is to say that we are lying. Then actually it's a symptom of us being demon-possessed. When I say there's a demonization of other views, it's literal in this sense. Like you're saying, you're attributing Jesus' words to demons. And um, throughout the podcast, they, they basically seek to discredit opposing views as a symptom of ungodliness and unchristlikeness yeah, and tribalism and tribalism and being and, divisive 
yeah. and, and majoring on minors. That was the big quote that I kind of yeah. think yeah. struck out to both of us is is that this this narrative that this whole thing was a minuscule, uh, tiny little yeah. issue yeah. that could have been resolved over a coffee and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these guys were just making a big deal out of nothing. Well, he, it's not like it was the Trinity or the Atonement. Yeah, that's what like he kept that. going back to. So right? I want to talk about first and second order, but um, the, the 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 general category is that they developed speech laws that would condemn Jesus and the prophets, and the purpose of this is to silence dissent and discussion. Um, they moralize compliance and their position and demonize those who disagree. Um. Paul kept saying over and over that it was confusing. There is nothing about Paul Carter over the last three years that would indicate in any way that he found anything confusing. No one I've read acted with more absolute certainty and unwillingness to entertain opposing views than Paul Carter. No one. That he acted like he had the corner on the truth on every aspect of this. That he alone was wise and that he could determine the boundaries of acceptable discourse, which he does throughout this whole podcast as well. Um, If Paul Cartier had actually acted like he was confused, and he is confused, he's a confused guy for sure, but if he had actually had the humility to say that this is confusing, what he should have done is responded to people's attempts to have a conversation with him. He should have hosted a public conversation amongst brothers who agree on the confession and who are otherwise friends, even, um, but who disagree or want to refine their thinking on church-state relationships, for example. Instead, he actually did the opposite. He actively opposed that kind of thing. And no one in Canada did more to undermine a legitimate conversation than Paul Carter. No one that I'm aware of. Um, that actually was his legacy during the last three years, was shutting down legitimate discourse. And he did it through a variety of deceitful and underhanded ways. And a, a lot of people see this. Um, I was surprised there were still men willing to go on this podcast, but a lot of people understand this. There was, there was nothing about you that acted like you were confused and that it was confusing and that we needed to have a conversation. But I, we want to affirm that would have been a good thing, Right. Um, the temptation to ignore reality in order to preserve yourself yeah. is, is something we see all over the Bible. Jeremiah six thirteen, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. The prophet is rebuking Israel for their corruption, their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're trying to lie about the severity of the situation. They're mm-hmm. trying to overlook sins. They're trying to, we go on to see in Ezekiel, overlook oppression that's happening. They're trying to reframe this situation um, in a way that absolves them of responsibility to repent, yeah. to act. That really jumped out at me listening to it. It was just, what I what I was hearing just had very little correspondence to reality. The, the Canada I've been in for the last three yeah. years. And and he, they kind of alluded. One guy actually said his couple of years was very normal, and I mean I thank God um, that his, he didn't suffer too badly. But a lot of people did, and uh, you're in no position to make judgment calls on other people if you are totally removed from their afflictions. Um, Ezekiel thirteen eight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. 
because you've have you because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions. Therefore, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enthroned in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. So Jeremiah is warning the people of God of the coming judgment for their disobedience and oppression and unfaithfulness. And the false prophets are contradicting this warning, saying there's there's not actually danger. We're not actually facing any danger here. It's a total refabrication of reality in a way that keeps them in power and helps them to avoid consequences. Yeah. And this is what we saw kind of throughout the lockdowns was this continual moving the goalposts. Yeah. And the threshold, right? The yeah. threshold for civil obedience hasn't been reached. Yeah. Without defining what that would look like. Yeah. Right. Um not it wasn't a principled response. Mm-hmm. It was a avoidance of conflict it's response. A avoidance response, at yeah. all costs. Yeah. It wasn't an extension of biblical principles where they had landed. It was just like how it was striking to me how like excited everybody was on that podcast for all of the ways in which they could make concession to state infringement. Yeah. It's like, oh, we had six services. We had to buy all this technology. It was like all these things in place so we didn't have to confront the actual issue Mm -hmm. so we didn't have to delineate the actual boundaries of the state before there is civil disobedience it was Mm -hmm. this continual like maneuvering so you never actually had to address all the issues yeah and face and of course all the the members in your church are going to want to do that yeah because you need to take the charge you need to lead the charge of course no one wants conflict well and if they see you're not going to have conflict then they're too happy to follow well this is why isaiah 30 goes and this is what i want to say to christians shepherds are culpable and they will be more harshly judged but sheep are culpable too for wanting to believe comfortable lies Mm -hmm. and and now go therefore write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for time to come as a witness forever they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel." Therefore, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. And um, Christians who go along with people who tell them lies because it keeps them comfortable, when you prefer to hear um, this fake reality that there wasn't a big problem, that it was a time of inconvenience, that if we just band together and do as we're told, we'll get through it. If you believe that... um, then and and you choose to do that because you don't like the consequences of facing the fact that people you have trusted your whole life can't be trusted, institutions that you trusted can't be trusted. Obedience might actually cost you everything. Um, you might cost your relationships and your job if you ignore reality and you gather around yourself people who will, as Paul says, itch your ears and tell you smooth things you want to hear. You are culpable as well. And uh, you are participating 
in the hypocrisy. The reason I call this hypocrisy is because that's what Jesus does in Luke 12. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Well, why does he call it hypocrisy? Well, it's because they possess um, the faculties to actually know what was going on, and they choose not to use them. So they'll say, I will use my mind that God has given me and reason which I can attain and my eyes and my ears um, in order to tell what's going to happen tomorrow with the weather. But then when I have to apply the same faculties over here to discern a moral issue, um, I actually choose not to. And so I'm, I'm being two-faced and um, yeah, and kind of the the pietism is very convenient for that. Oh yeah, um, when you can, it's not your responsibility to see. Res- no, and and obedience takes place in kind of a spiritual, personal, devotional level, right? Uh, and that's that's an easy way to exempt you from costly obedience. Yeah, when it's like. Um, that's why they don't like the politics talk. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, but when you don't address, just because you as a pastor and a shepherd can, um, you don't have to take responsibility when you communicate and preach in a pietistic way, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all in the spiritual realm. It's mm-hmm. like, but your sheep have to make uh, on the ground decisions yeah. about whether or not to you know, invite their friends over in a lockdown. That's or, a, that's a the huge difference yeah. actually in their conversation and the conversation that we've been having for two years is they said almost nothing about other people. Yeah. There was almost nothing in this pod. You wouldn't know from this podcast about the absolute carnage and the devastation and the ruin that people have faced in their life. And I know so many people who have been so hurt by guys like this, yeah. who have preserved their own lives and ignored the affliction of people in I their mean, congregation. I don't know which one it was on the podcast, but one of the one of the pastors said that at the beginning they decided to bubble with their leadership team. Yeah, which basically means they didn't interact in in real life with any of their congregants. Yeah. Right, and so they're going along with these this nonsense rule that you can only be around five people that aren't in your household or whatever it was. Yeah, um, but yeah, that would be to the detriment of lots of people. Yeah, but, well, tons uh, of people's lives were ruined <clears throat> through this. And pastors of all people should know that human beings created in the image of God were created to know and be known, not mm-hmm. only by God but by others. And that when you isolate people, you actually treat them in a fundamentally inhumane way. Mm-hmm. And for this guy to basically admit publicly that he was immune to the consequences of these policies because he found a way around them, um, you know, that's just so deceitful. That's so mm-hmm. hypocritical. Uh, most people's lives, especially those who are poor and vulnerable, who live in rooming houses, um, a lot of them just killed themselves. Yeah. A lot of and them succumbed to addictions. I, a I, lot of marriages fell apart. I think I mentioned this to both of you guys before we started, but I would have a lot like listening to those guys talk. I would have a lot more respect for them if they just came out and said, listen, I don't, I don't buy your, your interpretation of Romans 13. And I see that the government is being lying and deceitful and we really shouldn't trust them, but we still have to obey them. But I haven't heard, you don't hear that from that side. They don't address the hypocrisy or the deceit or the tyranny of the government at all. No, because as soon as they do, they have to acknowledge their complicitness in it. 
right? It changes the narrative, yeah. and they can't they can't change the narrative. And that's why I say it's more politicians than pastors, right? It's it's when leadership goes bad, mm-hmm. you know, because the leaders leaders do are required to have a certain capacity to anticipate consequences, and when you use that to protect yourself, and when you use that as a way of um, navigating through life and to, to protect your your image and narrative. I mean, that's a very dangerous thing. And we can all do this. And it's it's concerning when they, even they acknowledge that this isn't over. It's like... Something the, else the, is coming. The, 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 the substance of the state now as a sprawling bureaucracy um, means that this is going to happen again uh, very soon. Um, as far as maybe not a pandemic, but some kind of government overreach. And the response is not, um, man, we really need to hammer out our theology of church and state. It's kind of like we need to identify the divisive parties so we don't have that kind of disunity again, right? There's no impulse to like, okay, like we didn't really do well over the last two years. Let's really hammer this out. Yeah. this stuff out there's still a reluctance to talk about it yeah it's not it's not like they're gonna they're gonna go to the government like samuel went to saul and said it's not for you O king to to offer these sacrifices that's not your job you know yeah they're not going to call out the government even though they're acknowledging that i think at one point they were speaking of the government being um all powerful and competent yeah uh, i don't know if you caught that that part of the conversation yeah. maybe it was further on I, maybe i lasted a little longer than you guys but yeah uh, <laughs> they're talking about how right how people now expect their government to do everything and be good at it and they didn't say that in a i didn't i didn't get the get that they were saying that was a bad thing it's just that that's the way it is and we have to deal with it yeah you know well, ra- rather than say hey this isn't your job yeah uh, you're being a tyrant no you know so when we see this kind of hypocrisy, um, you know, in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Cephas came to Antioch and Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And, um, you know, and it was actually the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So hypocrisy is like leaven, Jesus says, and it's potent because it looks moral and it spreads through churches and um, Paul called out Peter, and it was a, it was a mercy. You know, this is a mercy that these men are receiving if they hear this, and um, we hope and pray for their repentance too. So let's let's get into this whole idea of what is a first order and a second order doctrine, right? Because uh, this was a fairly shallow conversation, and a lot of their conclusions were based on it. Um, Paul said repeatedly, you know, he he acted very surprised at the pushback against him personally or or their position. Uh, where did this come from? Kind of feigning um, a, a, a naivety and um, a neutral ground on this that, you know, um, there was nothing about Paul's response, as I said, over three years that suggested that he was confused and hesitant. Uh, he was totally set on his conclusions and he avoided at extreme cost to like suggesting you rid your social media of dissenting views. And anyone who would put on a profile picture of like the church is essential, he's like mocking and ridiculing and saying we shouldn't li-. like, you know, like Christian things, like normal Christian things, mocking them as like rebellious people who you should not listen to. Um, 
Paul acted like everything he thought was a first order issue and no dissent would be tolerated. That's how Paul Carter acted. Um, that's why there was conflict. Uh, Dwayne said at one point, I think it was Dwayne, there should have been a council. And this is precisely what many people were advocating for and what was not done by these guys. So we want to say we had a pastor's colloquium of pastors across Canada. Um, I know that there was events that, uh, that Ezra did that, that had a colloquium and they had something, the Niagara Declaration, uh, brothers from all over the spectrum, like that I disagree with on a lot of things, to listen, to learn, even, even uh, um, sharp conversation. Like this was not ego stroking. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we were doing these things and we were advocating for these things and we were hoping for these things. Uh, to my knowledge, TGC Canada has not done none of this. Um, at least they didn't do it in the heat of the battle. They they showed up after the blood had been spilled, and they're with with their you know brave brave Sir Robin, right? Um, <laughs> to, but they to but, scold us for the kind of words we were using. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, you know, there's a council of men with a lot of pastoral experience and theologians and access to theologians that we very easily could have in the spring of 2020 put together a colloquium, including people coming who, who agree on the same confession with different views and learned and um, very easily uh, come to a lot more agreement on this. And that was actively um, shut down. Paul actually says this should have been mildly heated, but this is Raul acting like the Pope, right? Says who? Who says this should be mildly heated? Well, the, the, the appropriateness of our words is entirely based upon the context of us using them, right? That's a biblical principle. Um, that, that you, there's almost no speech in the Bible that's actually absolutely forbidden. I mean, there's X-rated speech in the Bible, and um, there's also a lot of scripture about how we use our speech, to be sure. Yeah. But one of the most fundamental principles is, what is the context, and who are we speaking to? And so one of the things that Paul and his ilk have done is refuse to be honest about the context. So what I'm saying is I'm, my, my issue is not even first with um, the state, or may, maybe it's there, but it's actually about oppression. So the reason I care about this is first and foremost is, you know, my dad was in long-term care during this. I had someone who overdosed in a park, a friend of mine. I had a 33-year-old young man as a family friend go undiagnosed for six months and then have, have a couple of months to live at stage four cancer. And he died. You know, I had marriages fall apart. Like, I just saw the devastation and the ruin, especially from people who were voiceless, who had no voice, who were being afflicted by those who faced the least consequences for their decisions. The Zoom class, we now call them. The people who, for them, the pandemic was like this pastor is super easy and normal. Um, but I meant I saw the people whose lives were absolutely devastated. Okay. So if I walk into a house and start yelling at my family because I've had a bad day, it's sinful. If I walk into a house and it's on fire and I yell at my kids to get out, it's actually righteous. So you can't actually say you're yelling, it's wrong. You have to say, well, why are you yelling? And what these men refuse to do and apply every clever technique they can to get around it is face the truth of the situation. 
The truth of the situation is that people's lives were absolutely ruined, that the state took on a, a tyrannical position, that the rule of law was subverted, and that the state um, uh, uh, ascribed to itself a level of authority that belongs to God alone. And they sought to implement policies that were based on the assumption of God-like um, attributes, that they're all-knowing and all-powerful. Uh, lockdowns, lockdownism as an ideology is is that. It's saying that we, we can control reality, we can control life, we can control human <laughs> interactions, and we see the failure of that. And so the people who are upset about this, after eight months of the other side ignoring what was going on, ignoring the plight of the afflicted, is to say this is very serious and they're saying you're not allowed to say this is serious, and this isn't a first order yeah, this issue. Is second order stuff here. This yeah. is a second order, or third order, or whatever they would put it. Yeah, and it's a disingenuous and deceitful way of framing the conversation, right? Well, it's it's ignoring. <laughs> that's that's what we're arguing about. That right? it's we're not, arguing that it's not a third order yes. issue, and you're saying no, but it's a third order issue. Yeah, like that's your. You're argument. not. You have no authority to say that. So just right now, if. This is a second order, third order guys would like to have a conversation. And from a person who thinks it's a first order thing, I'm willing to do that. Anytime, any place we can make it public. Because I believe that these are there are first order issues involved here. That's precisely what we're saying. And by framing it as a secondary order issue, you're actually trying to demonize people who disagree with you as overstating things or um, acting actually in an unchristlike way, in an unchristian way. And I would say that you are acting in an unchristlike way by lying about the situation. So, um, a, a couple of, of of comments I want to make about what is a a first order um, issue. This is somewhat ironic coming from Paul Carter. Uh, keep in mind he referred to a heretic who was called out as a heretic for his denial of penal substitution, who it came out is a serial sexual abuser as a brother in Christ, after he was told by people who studied his teaching that he was a false teacher and a heretic for denying the atonement. Um, saying Paul came out publicly and said, he's just a brother from a different denomination, essentially. He's just an Anabaptist. Um, that guy does not know what first order means. Okay, if, if denying penal substitution is not a first order thing, um, then you don't know what first order is, okay? Um, in the Bible, doctrine is inseparable from living, and this is what these guys missed. And then they talked about doctrine in a, in a very immature way. Um, in the Bible, the phrase healthy Doctrine is used. Sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. And the reason is that true doctrine produces healthy fruit. And God expects us not only to test someone's doctrinal test scores, uh, but to test their life and see if it aligns with healthy doctrine. Paul mentions mm -hmm. various sinful behaviors as being out of alignment with sound doctrine in 1 Timothy 1, right. which he also says is out of alignment with the gospel. So certain behaviors are, are not consistent with sound doctrine, and they're not consistent with the gospel. In other words, our fruit either reflects the gospel or denies the gospel. So a practice can be a first-order practice if it is a functional denial of the gospel. 
And this is just basic. These guys are talking about doctrine like it's just some test you write. Mm. Like it's just some mental affirmation of something. That is not the way that the Bible talks about doctrine anywhere at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and not the way that the apostles deal with doctrine and what they say you should look for in a false teacher and false doctrine. So I want to lay out some doctrinal issues that came up over the course of um, this catastrophe that are first order. Um, the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every rule and authority is a first order doctrine. Yes. The contention of the nonconformists fundamentally is that there is a confusion at best, if not outright capitulation to the state in ascribing authority to the state, which belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. They can deny that. They can say that that's not what's happening, but they cannot say that that issue is not first order. There is no higher order issue than that. None. So that is a contention. First order First of the first of the highest order issues is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this has been the case in Scripture. This has been the case in church history. So if you want to have a discussion about the Lordship of Christ as it relates to the last three years, that's fine. You're late. You missed it. But we can still talk. Mm. What you can't say is is that this, this is not a first order thing. Which is why they have to lie and say, right. no, no, that's that's not even an issue here. No, what, I think what came out was uh, that uh, the the accusation was that we just were mad that our freedoms were taken away and we have this idol, this religion of freedom. Yeah. Uh, and we're not, you know, it's not a real Christian religion. You just love our freedom. Say, say <laughs> the guys who enjoyed the privilege of freedom more than most people over the last three years. Yeah. Um, Colossians 1.18 says... He, Christ, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which is to say the purpose of the resurrection was the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So to threaten or to challenge or to deny the preeminence of Jesus is to deny the gospel. It is, because the purpose of the gospel was to establish the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... um. This preeminence is over all authority, including the state. The phrase that Jesus is Lord is and was a direct assault on the claims of the state. At the time, Caesar is Lord. That it wasn't a thing that just dropped from heaven. This was a common phrase and it was ascribed to Caesar. Uh, Christians are required to be both model citizens and dissidents of tyrants because we cannot offer the kind of obedience and worship that the unbelieving state requires. Mm -hmm. So we do not offer honor to Caesar and submission to Caesar on Caesar's terms, because by definition, Caesar requires our worship and obedience that that only belongs to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus himself clearly taught that there are limits to Caesar's authority, saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and the second part of the verse that people leave out, and to God what is God's, implying that there are things which do not belong to Caesar. And this contradicts Caesar's self-understanding of his authority and its its lack of limits. Um, Defining and limiting the state's authority is not a political conversation. It's not a secondary conversation. It is a first-order worship issue. To ascribe authority to the state that it does not possess is, by definition, idolatry. It is not biblical submission. 
the early church clearly understood this when they responded to the civil authorities' demand they disobey Jesus, saying, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. So the Lordship of Jesus Christ and how his authority works in relation to other God-ordained authorities is a first-order issue. And that conversation has simply not be had. Hmm. And to say that there's no first-order issue at play in the last three years as secondary is naive and ignorant to the point where you should immediately resign because you will be harshly judged, the Bible says, and you have no capability being a pastor whatsoever. Or perhaps more dangerously, a level of deception that is um, a level of deception which is just evil. Mm-hmm. So there's no way around that. There, I mean, there must be some understanding on his part what our side has actually said. So it's hard to it's hard to plead ignorance and say, "Oh, I just didn't know what you guys were actually saying." You know, like he's no, I like, no, <laughs> and I don't know all of these guys. I know Paul is a very deceitful man, but um, I don't. I mean, I would want to say. Like, you guys need to clarify these things. The other pastors who were in that conversation, if you actually think there was no first order issue at stake in the last few years, um, then you haven't you actually need to heard, grow up. Haven't actually heard what we said. Yeah. But the argument was made that um, the dissenters weren't making their arguments from, from biblical texts, but we were making them purely on the basis of our idolatry of freedom. Yeah, that's. And I think, well, I don't know who you've been talking to. I yeah. mean, I know plenty of secular Canadians who who have made an idol of freedom, yeah. and that's their only argument. But that wasn't the case for for the nonconformists. No, and I'd like to circle back to what freedom actually is right. and address that. The second first order issue um, is the doctrine of human sin. I mean, this is rich coming from self professed reformed guys, uh, but the, the the functional denial of human sinfulness. <laughs> is a functional denial of the gospel. And so many men in this time have revealed a functional Pelagianism whereby a certain class of people, namely the powerful and the expert class, is functionally above the effects of the fall and should be treated with a deference and trust characteristic of God. So what is absolutely absurd is that Reformed Christians did not immediately have a suspicion towards the state Three years ago, mm-hmm. and I put myself in the same boat. Not because we're, not because we are seditious, not because we are um, anti-authority, not because we are unsubmissive, because we're Christians, because we are sub- we are suspicious of all people in some way. There's a sinful kind of suspiciousness, which actually is an elevating of your own opinion, but a suspiciousness that all human beings are corrupt. And they are complete. They are corrupt in every single aspect or capacity of human nature, apart from God's regenerating grace. And so, we should have, um, at one hand, practiced a deference. The Scripture requires that the various gifts, knowledge, and experience that people possess as image bearers of God, um, and we should listen and we should learn absolutely. But we should also, with that, couple the fact that humans are depraved. And that humans in power, especially, are have faced certain proclivities. Um, this, as well as the people who told us to do all these things, the public health people in particular. My public health guy today on Twitter just was advocating for um, abortion access. 
And and I was just like, in the name of human rights, he said it's yeah. a human right. So they think it's a human right to kill a human. They think that the powerful should be able to oppress the weak. They think that boys can be girls. A one plus one is five. They think that we should kill the elderly. They think that we should, um, someone who's facing trouble finding housing should be able to take two pills. Mm-hmm. One to paralyze them and the other to kill them. They think you should be able to do that. And you tell us that we should trust these people, that they understand what a human being is and what's good for mm-hmm. us. Couple this with their um, authoritarian nature and in going into all of human life. So what we saw in this kind of push to deference and a push to trust the experts and the absolute incredulity when someone insisted that maybe they don't have our best interests at heart, that maybe you shouldn't trust everything they say, the criticism and the incredulity that they expressed reveals a functional Pelagianism. That you, you, as much as you preach and teach and say human depravity, you are not practicing that belief. You are not practicing that belief. Mm -hmm. And yet they're totally fine saying that people who leave my church and people who express concerns over these things, they're the real problem. Like they, they're depraved. They have human They're syphilis. divisive. Yeah. They're divisive, all of these things. But a particular class of people is functionally beyond the fall. And so the, the, a, a full orb doctrine of human sin, and it, not just in your words, but in your actions, is absolutely a first order issue. Third, standing with the oppressed is a first order issue. Um, lockdowns, were the most devastating social experiment perhaps ever. Um, you know, was it the World Bank? Um, it basically estimates, I think, 150 to 190 million women and children were thrust into abject poverty, which for the, you know, protected Zoom class and their bubble, I just want them to know that that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, that means that you're on the but precipice but, of death. But they're over on another continent somewhere. Yeah. So I can't see them. Yeah, I mean, you probably don't have a, a duty towards them, but that means that they're on the precipice of death. That means that um, at any point, you, you know, they're, when we say vulnerable, we use that for everything. We mean like literally, if they don't eat tomorrow, they don't drink tomorrow, the next day they might die kind of thing. Like that's the position that we put them in. Um, the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world from middle to upper class occurred during lockdowns. Um, that's theft. Yeah, and the yeah. people who are most affected by these policies were the <clears throat> were the poor, um, not only in our churches and our cities, but globally. Um, lockdowns represented the oppression of the poor at the hands of the strong, and the policies that were put into place had the least consequences on those imposing them and the most consequences on those beneath them, which is an absolute in- moral inversion of the way God says the world should run. Those who should be great among you must be your servants. And instead, these people use and abuse other people. Uh, When I hear these men talk about minor inconveniences and mental stress, they simply betray their enormous privilege and insulation from the consequence of these things. It's an indictment on them, and um, their own words condemn them. Did these guys um, take government money while their congregants lost their jobs? Did their churches take money that paid for their salaries? while they advocated for obedience to lockdowns while people in their church lost their job. And by the way, when you lose your job, 
Um, having a job is actually one of the greatest indicators of life expectancy. So when you lose your job, your life expectancy goes down by a number of years. It's actually deadly for people. And that's be- a Christian should understand the full view of humanity and the dignity and necessity of work um, and these types of things. Mm. We, we should know that. Yeah, uh, It's not just about money. It's about meaning in your life. It's about providing for your family. Uh, families, when you lose your job, when your business closes up, your entire trajectory for your whole life changes. Your children's entire future changes forever. And maybe some people will crawl out of that ditch. Uh, a lot of people didn't. Um, uh, did they, you know, what, what, did, what did they say when our government imposed um, mandatory health procedures? On people in our congregation when they were fired from their jobs for not wanting to take an experimental drug. You know, like lockdowns were the greatest act of oppression, one of them, probably the greatest that we've actually ever seen. And to be silent on that actually is damning. And, um, you know, the people who were most vulnerable for COVID, we knew statistically in 2020 were those 80 and above multiple comorbidities, you know, living in long-term care, our own Canadian government said that they failed long-term care. Like their own admission, Teresa mm-hmm. Tam said this, um, that they did absolutely nothing. Like I said, my dad died in long-term care. You know, at one point we found him in a pool of his own blood, unattended to for hours. Um, we went to his, my mom used to go to his window in March and it was open four inches and she would sit out in the cold to be with him. He had severe dementia, can't communicate. They closed the window even if she was 10 feet back from it outside in the middle of winter, they closed the window so he just couldn't hear or see anyone. And my dad's life ended in absolute misery and confusion. And the last thoughts in his mind were probably, I've been utterly abandoned by my family. That's all he understood. And that was a case of thousands of people. The most serious contributing factor to death for dementia patients is isolation. So it's like, Nothing we did for public health helped anything with COVID. No. Like masks, unequivocally, all the data has been run. They were utterly effective at a population level. And there was never any controversy about this. It's a total gaslighting. The things that we did to help people, we put kids who are the least vulnerable to any of this. We devastated them in their education. We, we muzzled their faces. We screwed up their development. They are in no way at risk from this, statistically speaking. And the people who we are, who were, and we knew were, were left and they died slow, miserable, painful deaths. And they actually still are because nothing has been done to help them. And to overlook that and to deny that and to pretend that's not happening um, is a level of hypocrisy and wickedness that is a first order issue because it is out of step with the gospel. Fourth, the necessity of corporate worship, the preaching of God's word in the assembly, the reception of the sacraments, and the practice of discipline are all first-order doctrines. Yep. And this has never, ever been in dispute, to my knowledge, in the history of the church. <laughs> Till 2020. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the most common practice, mode, above mode of baptism and even the mode of um, the Lord's Supper, is absolutely the assembly of the church on the Lord's day. So let, let me ask you this, because I, I agree, it's this has not been a contention, you know. But we had people trying to reinterpret Hebrews ten twenty five, and 
all this stuff. And it's like that we all know what that says and what it means. It's, yeah. it's never been in dispute. No, it's also, there's also in the past, there's been plenty of pressure against those things from the culture to not meet, to, yeah. to isolate. So why is it now that suddenly the cultural pressure is making the church capitulate on these things? Well, it's not like, so, so take the sexual issues, for instance, it's really convenient now to reinterpret the scripture to be LGBTQ plus affirming because everybody around you is affirming and it's easier just to give in and reinterpret the Bible. Okay. So that's, that's never been like that in the past, but there's been plenty of pressure in the past to not get together. I mean, you're going to get sent to Siberia or you're going to get lynched or something if you, if you proclaim Jesus as Lord and meet. So why is it now that this pressure is causing the church to abandon this? Well, I'd like, say, what, what do you guys think? Well, I say two things. One, the church has always faced the temptation to capitulate. So when you read about the church in Eastern Bloc, for example, there are plenty of capitulators. Um, obviously, even the, the the controversy we discussed at the very beginning, there are people who capitulated. Right. Uh, the church has always had cowards in it, which is why John warns uh, the church in Revelation that cowards go to hell. Um, and that fear not is the most oft-repeated command in Scripture. It's because fear is a very dangerous thing, and the fear is a temptation that we can give into very easily, and why pastors are called to have courage and, with the conviction of Scripture, encourage their flock to take heart. And um, so it is always a danger. I don't want to say that this is the first time we faced it, and the church has failed in many ways, and we fa- we have many warnings in Scripture that we must hold fast to our confession to the end. And what that means is um, we have to actually be obedient, not say in our brains we believe this confession, mm-hmm. I'm a Reformed guy. We have to walk out what the obedience looks like to the truth that we proclaim. That's what it means. No, no, one, no one, it doesn't matter if you have your private beliefs that you over your Zoom thing believe, right? That doesn't what matters if you're faithful in a way that will actually cost you to the end. Mm. And the second thing I'd say why we're facing this issue now is because uh, there's a, a cultural crisis in Canadian pastors uh, for courage. And we've, again, the worldliness has seeped in that, you know, the idea of being non. Um, Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Non rock a boat. They believe that right. uh, the <laughs> compliance is actually a virtue. Inherently, right. they believe that compliance is a virtue, and they believe that non-compliance is inherently a vice, which is devastating to Christian discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their masters uh, at tone, and so they have the acceptable discourse you were allowed in that doesn't in any way reflect the Bible. And actually, it's a standard of speech which would condemn the sinless Son of God. I mean, it's it's bad. Like this is revealed that a lot of our assumptions about discipleship are just straight up Canadian cultural Christianity. They're not biblical. So um, it doesn't surprise me. But I mean, the the only way out of this is to acknowledge our failure, right? Is to say that we've been cowards and um, that we need to repent and God God will strengthen us. You know, God Mm. turned Peter and uh, Peter did, from all accounts, die faithfully. And, And these men can hope for that and we can hope for that too. Um, but yeah, the, the necessity of gathering for worship on the Lord's Day and the reception of the sacraments, and um, this has never been a, th- a dispute. And uh, to act like this is 
a controversial thing is really just a deceptive way to get out of obedience. It's not. It's not controversial. Mm-hmm. We don't need to write many articles on this. There's nothing, you know, There's you can make some nuances. Like if you're shipwrecked on a Sunday and you can't make it, that's fine. If you're sick and in quarantine, that's fine. Like there's, there's common sense, rational. We could have had a conversation for a minute about this stuff and then just decide, okay, how are we going to move forward? Um, but my point is, the assembly of the church to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, to receive the sacraments, to practice church discipline, uh, and to hear the word is a first order issue. It's not a second. Uh, fifth, the preservation of conscience is a first order issue. Um, pastors who have forbidden what Christ commands and commanded what Christ forbids have sinned against Christ. And First uh, Corinthians eight twelve. Paul says, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And so, um, matters of conscience are very serious issues. And actually, TGC in America came out and said that masks are not a matter of conscience. It was a it was a horrific article. It's terrible. Terribly. Was the BioLogos one that they also. Um, no, this is just a guy writing for TGC America, and. Um, it was just deceptively framed. and But we have to realize, when you say something isn't a matter of conscience, the only category is it's a matter of obedience. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and which means... You're binding to, somebody's conscience. You're binding that, someone. You're right. saying to not do this is sin. And that's that's just pure legalism. And um, yeah, anyone who actually forbid someone coming to worship the living God because they wouldn't put something over their face is just... That is just legalism... That's just sin straight up. Uh, what's worse is men did this who will now want to say they knew they didn't work. Um, one, if you led your congregation to believe they worked and that they were safe when they weren't, you're a liar and you're a hypocrite and you're not loving. So part of my reason why I didn't want to wear it often was actually there are people who are susceptible and <clears throat> I don't want them to actually think they're not at risk because they put a piece of cloth over their face. There's never, ever been any disagreement about the effectiveness of a cloth mask for aerosol particles. Never. Like, it's it's just actually never been disputed. Um, if you're someone who's late to the game and you lack the common sense and wisdom and, like, one plus one is two capabilities to recognize that, like, breathe on it on a piece of glass and see if anything shows up, that can be COVID particles. You can do a basic test. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, then that's, you know... Okay, but there's lots of people who did, who have been, it's the equivalent of being told to put on a tinfoil hat and a clown nose and you're good, to tie some garlic around you, to carry a silver dagger. It's it's superstitious. With a little whirly gig on your head. Yeah, so yeah. someone knows this because they're a rational adult and you tell them they can't come to worship, you're committing a sin. Um. And and the absolute slaughter of conscience and the ease at which pastors have done this is scary. You should be very, very, very cautious of um, making matters of conscience matters of obedience. Mm-hmm. And that's a sign of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say is loving your neighbor is a first order doctrine. Uh, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And reducing loving your neighbor to following ineffective and dangerous public health mandates is sinful. And uh, there's been an entirely 
there's been a reframing of what love looks like in Christian community in a time of crisis. And what a lot of these guys did is say love looks like obeying the state. And um, now, I mean, many of us knew this for a long time, but it's unequivocal at this point. Even the things that you thought were loving were just not loving. Yeah, and I think a lot of it boiled down to loving your neighbor is doing what they think is loving. Yeah. So if they're going to think you're unloving for going to work or not wearing a mask or going to church, then you shouldn't do those things. Yeah. Because then they're going to think you're unloving. But that's what children <laughs> will say now if yeah. you won't um, mutilate them. Yeah. You don't love me because you don't affirm me. Yeah. So is it is it loving to treat humans worse than plants and literally forbid even sunlight to them? Uh, is it loving to cancel health care for cancer patients um, and people die in their early 30s? You know, is it loving to forbid people from working and take years off their life and, and you know, ruin their family's future? Uh, is it loving to support public dissent, uh, a public dissent into the worst and most vile of human attitudes? I mean, our country has descended to a level of immorality and hatred that we have never known. And this was, for the most part, totally supported by the church mm-hmm. under the guise of loving your neighbor. Um, you know... Love recognizes the needs of human beings according to God's word and does good to them according to God's word, not according to whatever the public health officials say. And so our contention is that there's been a lack of love, and this is a first-order issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was reading earlier today uh, an article on the Westmount blog from uh, Andrew Brown. Yeah. And uh, he he was doing a little biography of Cotton Mather. I don't know if you guys know much about Cotton Mather. Uh, he was around in the States. Uh, when would that have been? Like 1700s or something like that? Anyway, he his wife, he, he lost two of his wives, but one of them, he lost his wife to smallpox because some of their kids had smallpox and the mother, she just couldn't bear to not be around them and care for them yeah. through their illness. And she ended up contracting it and passing away as well. And... Um, it's like that, even even that was taken away from us. Like the ability to choose for yourself, whether you're going to put yourself in harm's way yeah. to care for the people you love. Well, how many elderly people um, died alone? So at the end of your life, 80 years, you don't even have a choice to have someone hold your hand. Yeah. That my mom wasn't even beside her husband's side. Now, I was able to get in and watch him die like I watched his dad die. But, um, you know, my wife sang over over I like over the phone to him. Um, he wasn't surrounded by his family. Yeah. And we had it like we were fortunate that my sister and I got in. Most people imagine going to the hospital and no, I mean I was in the hospital in the ICU. I almost died. And they wouldn't let anyone see me. Even though I was past the period of um past the period of uh, infectiousness by yeah. by COVID. Even when I came into the hospital, I was having a reaction. I didn't have a doctor told me you don't have COVID. Like you're past COVID, you're on day 12, you have you have the cytokine storm, you know? And my wife said, like, I'll go. I was in a huge room. She's like, I'll go in there and sleep. Like they thought I was going to die. She said, I'll stay in there. I'll wear whatever you want me to wear and I just won't leave. And if he dies, I want to see him through. And they said, no. And it's like, you don't have the right to say that to someone. No. You don't have the right to forbid the dying from their loved ones. And, um, you know, we know someone who was for like three months was in isolation and they kept testing him 
to keep him in there in isolation. You know how evil that is? Because a PCR test is up to 90 days. It says on the test, public, yep. they'll write you an exemption at Bureau of Public Health. They told me not to take one for 90 days after I took, after I had a positive. So they one. kept testing him. They knew that. Yep. They keep him in isolation for 90 days, even though he hadn't been infectious for since like day seven or eight, probably maximum day 10 kind of thing. It's, it, and so many people were in that condition. So many people were scared and alone at home. So many people are afraid to go into the hospital. Like, was, was what we did, what we did was not loving. What we did was the opposite. It was self-preserving. Mm-hmm. And it was the worst kind of self-preserving because it was self-preserving while trying to call it virtue. Even, and, and this is where it's twisted, like even if the virus was what they claimed it was going to be, it would still not be loving to to deny that to people you know but no. it was it's you know it was a bad flu and they and they still went to those extremes yeah you know yeah and i mean the last thing i'll say about freedom um for freedom christ has set us free <laughs> like hello uh the law of liberty have you heard of that like freedom is not uh the virtue of the libertarian it's the Christian's inheritance in Jesus Christ. But that's just a spiritual freedom. It has yeah, nothing right, to do with right, it. right. So when we say freedom, we mean the right and corresponding ability to pursue obedience to Christ. Right. And or short, freedom is the right and ability not to do what we want, but the right and ability to do what we ought. Yep. And Christ died so that we have the ability to do what we ought. He forgives us of our sins. He causes us to be born again so that we can actually, so that the, the flesh is put to death, the sinful desires, the enslaving, uh, the enslavement we have to those desires, it ends. And then we can actually pursue him. We can actually love him and we can actually love other people. And we are to pursue those things. And the state or any pastor or no one, can tell us that we are not free to be obedient to Christ, and we are not free to love our neighbor. We are not free to love God. That's what we mean. To forbid freedom, according to the scriptures, is dehumanizing. It's unjust. Mm. So framing freedom, you know they sounded like? The Toronto Star. Yeah. They sounded like statist media propaganda who talked about how freedom is actually fundamentally selfish. You know, the Freedom Convoy came out, trying to try to denigrate people who showed up because people in their town were committing suicide at such an unprecedented rate, they stopped counting. That's what Tamara Leach said. That's why she got in her truck. Um, that, that the people around her were being destroyed by these things. That's what they mean by freedom. They mean like freedom to exist as a human being. Um, and for these pastors to scoff at that, it just shows the bigotry mm-hmm. and the elitism and the absolute disdain they and, have for normal people. And then to go on and say, well, you know, it gave us a bit of a taste of what the, the rest of the global church has lived under. They didn't have a taste of that. <laughs> Sounds like they had some headaches and some stress. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, I mean, the response to all of this is like, you need to repent. Like you need to, you're, you're lying about what happened. You're lying about the principles that are involved. You're lying about the doctrinal issues that are involved in this. You're reframing things in a way to make it seem like you have no culpability and therefore no response to repent. And you just actually need to stop. 
And if the church in Canada is going to stand for what comes next, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be by lying about what has happened. It's not going to be by lying about what we need to do moving forward to protect mm-hmm. yourself. Honest, humble, self-reflection, confession to God, confession to your churches, confession for those you slandered, confession for those you wrong. And I will say publicly that if you do that, then I will forgive you and that I will receive your forgiveness and I will celebrate your repentance as I would any Christian um, who believes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I had this thought when I was listening to that because there was a bit of talk about church growth and that sort of thing. Um, there's a pragmatic part of our brain that wants to go, okay, which part, where, where's the church growing? And that's the right, that's the right space. And uh, I mean, both of our churches have been growing as well too. So it's, that's not a question, but I just think going back to church history, like the, the Aryan churches, the heretical Aryan churches were dominant yeah. for hundreds yeah. of years. Yeah. So there was, there was a period of hundreds of years where the people who were correct uh, were in the very small minority, and the other and the the heretics thrived, yeah. and gained you know a cultural supremacy, yeah. And so we, I mean, it could be a while before we see that repentance yeah. or that disintegration of these churches that don't acknowledge these truths, yeah. So. yeah you don't determine faithfulness by a head count either. I mean, you t- determine faithfulness by obedience. It doesn't matter if your church is growing or shrinking. Um, that doesn't change. That's correct. Anything else uh, you guys want to add? No, I think I'll leave it at that. You're all you're all bloviated out, or what? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I would, I would hope there would be a public conversation. That would be great. And uh, stop, stop pushing that off. And um, every man seems right in his own eyes until another man examines his case. Mm-hmm. And so. Everyone has heard what you've had to say for three years. It's been the only acceptable point of view, uh, but it's. I think it's obviously time for you to hear something else. Uh, I was thinking when you brought up the point about people who just have this right doctrine and uh, they kind of judge themselves based on that, it brought to mind that character in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Talkative, remember him? They, get, they meet that guy on the road, and he just he's saying all the right things, but the the one you know, Christian's like, mm, I think there's something about this guy that's not quite right. And as they examine him more closely, they find that he is living in disobedience, even though he believes all these right things. Yeah. Anyway, we've been we've been on for a while now. We should probably go. Looks like uh, you guys are ready for lunch, late lunch, early dinner. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Uh, we uh, really hope this was beneficial. And uh, we do obviously um, sincerely pray for repentance and restoration for people. Mm-hmm. We'll leave you with this. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. 